Welcome to the Health Trip with Jill Foos podcast. I'm Jill, your host, and I'm here to take you on various health and wellness trips featuring functional medicine doctors, holistic practitioners, and incredible leaders in the health and wellness space. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach located in Chicago, and I specialize in helping my clients discover their unique health equation to optimize their lives. And um, today, I have a very special guest. He is not a functional medicine doctor, but he is the doctor of all health food branding. His name is Steve Gaither, and he is also a good friend of mine. So Steve, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jill. So Steve is a interesting character with a, an amazing pedigree of wealth and knowledge in the CPG arena. Steve is a chief marketing officer at CA Fortune, a consumer brand agency that includes a national sales agency, sales accelerator, e-com agency, as well as branding and marketing. CA Fortune clients range from Fortune 500, middle market to emerging brands. As a mentor at the Good Food Business Accelerator, ICNC, The Food Foundry, Chicagoland Food and Bev, Big Idea Ventures, and The Hatchery. His relationships with entrepreneurs led him to co-found the Windy City Troublemakers, an early stage food meetup in Chicago. Formerly, Steve was the founder and CEO of JB Chicago, which was acquired by CA Fortune in 2019, as well as a partner in Spiral Sun Ventures, where he and his fellow CPG experts provided the capital and go-to market strategies that help brands accelerate their growth. Steve graduated from the Ball State University with a degree in architecture and planning, and he resides in Munster, Indiana with his wife and three kids. So, ha, huh, can you believe you have accomplished all of those things? Well, the wife and three kids, that's the, that's the amazing part, you know? Right. Back <laughs> in the morning, I was a pretty man back in the day. <laughs> right, right. Just uh, an, an incredible wealth of, in, of knowledge in this space. And so just a little bit of background on my relationship with Steve. I, before I was a functional medicine health coach and integrative nutrition health coach, I was a founder and CEO of a food manufacturing company. And my company was called Zima's Madhouse Foods. Zima's st stood for the, my five kids' names, not in chronological order, but those were all their initials. And I manufactured a line of gluten-free, top eight allergen-free uh, baking mixes and ready-to-eat cookies. And Steve was the marketing company that we chose in Chicago to work with. And you know, I, I entered this world as just a mom in her kitchen trying to figure out and solve some food and health issues for my own kids' needs. And, you know, to then move beyond the kitchen into the space of food manufacturing, it's like moving to another country. You know, I you spoke this language that I never heard before. The whole SEO was new to me, just all of it. And you were so kind and I, you must have recognized the terror and worry on my face <laughs> at all times in all of our meetings. And you broke it down for me. And I'm sure you see that a lot that these, you know, moms, dads, or kids, people who are trying to solve these health issues of for themselves for somebody in their family who stumble upon this great idea or what they think is a great idea and then they're like all their friends are like oh you got to bring this product to market right which is what happened to me when my kids were in preschool people were like these are great chill and blah 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 i didn't know i i had no experience in that world and you made it pleasurable and you made it comprehensible like I, I didn't understand any of it but you broke it down for me well you could have fooled me come on you knew the game you, you were great if I knew the game I really did not like the game <laughs> <laughs> it is one tough business to to be in it is, it, is, it, is. it is it is for the young it is not only just for the young it is for the young who have zero responsibility like no cat no dog no fish <laughs> no no spouse no boyfriend or girlfriend nothing like you don't even have a plant in your place all you have is this product and you want to bring it to market and honestly that's the best way to start 
I think that goes for entrepreneurs in general. You have to be a little bit ignorant and a little bit crazy. Otherwise, no one would ever start any business, right? So in food, it's yeah. just that much more. If, if you would have known everything involved in it, no one would ever get involved. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to take a deep dive into what it takes to even get involved. I really am curious about the 2021 food trends that are um, upon us now and what's going on in the world. And so before we even just get started on that, how did you even get into this space? I mean, you studied architecture and planning. Well, I guess a lot of this takes architecture and planning. You're literally mapping out the growth from ground zero. Well, there's, there, there's a lot of sort of common threads. I, 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 I relate it to design thinking, right, is really what it's come down to. But how I get into natural foods was I, I created a marketing agency, Branding, and we were sort of uh, vertical agnostic. Uh, and I started a, a project right when social media was starting to hit. We, we were doing some crazy things on Twitter in the early days. Uh, sold something into Unilever with Axe with, uh, deodorant. So if you had a 17-year-old boy at the time, you definitely knew Axe deodorant. Um, and out of that big launch, uh, I, I got introduced to Tetra Pak, right? Tetra Pak was the you know, shelf-stable uh, 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 processing for aseptic pack packaging. And they were doing a campaign where um, with Hershey's and Organic Valley, right? So the weird thing about Tetra Pak was no one in the United States at the time understood the concept of shelf-stable milk. You know, you go to other countries and get bags of milk. So they were using our sort of digital prowess and our social prowess to try to create a campaign for Hershey's Organic Valley uh, chocolate milk. So we ended up doing a campaign and a lot of great stuff out of it. We had chocolate milk trending on Twitter for 28 hours, which is insane stuff in the early days. And out of it, the CEO at the time was Alan Murray, who was CEO of Tetra Pak North America. And I found out in his meeting with all the other CEOs from around the world, he was talking about this Twitter thing that we did, you know. And um, he, after he left Tetra Pak and moved over to Goodbelly, you know, which at the time was a small, basic start startup out of uh, Boulder, you know, they used a holding company from of Next Foods, which was Silk. Uh, and he basically went from big, massive organization to 15-person sort of startup out of Boulder. And I really started to, we sort of mentored each other. I, I definitely think I got the better end of the bargain there. You know, I mentored him a little bit about branding and consumer behavior and about digital. And he mentored me a ton about, uh, you know, picking the right retailer, owning home, and all these different things that I thought he was a little crazy with at the beginning. Uh, you know, because he could call any customer in the world or any retailer in the world and, and get in there. And he chose Rocky Mountain, Whole Foods and small growth. And it was it, it was great to sort of learn the industry from uh, somebody like Alan. So I started to really get into the food and bev space. And ironically, I created a group years ago, my uh, attorney, uh, Scotty Cap invited me to a banker dinner. And I'm like, I, I don't want to go. And he's like, hey, you're going to have two advisors next to you not billing you and a stake in front of you. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm obviously a carnivore. Um, went, met all these private equity guys, family offices, all these sort of transactional cash folks. And I was the only marketing guy in the room. So I looked a lot cooler than I actually was, but I started learning about deal flow and activity of these companies. And then I noticed that they started dipping down in the food space instead of uh, investing in $20 million companies that were starting to come down to five and $1 million companies. And I was like, you guys don't know how to work with early stage entrepreneurs that have a heck of a lot different problem than a second generation $80 million tool and die shop out of Iowa, right? So, uh, so I had this group of all sharks, no fish, all these transaction folks. And then I went and uh, partnered with Patrick Tanus from TS to T and sort of, sort of created this, this group that was all fish with no sharks of early stage food brands. You know, some of the people sitting around the tables the first uh, the first couple months were like Patrick from Tiesta, Caitlin was there from Simple Mills, Peter and Jared from RX Bar, John Gia Karras, who was with Little Lady Foods. And it just started turning into this AA for food brands. And I found out their problems that they had along the way were, um, I'm working with a manufacturer that sucks the least out of the three I tried. 
I'm paying X amount with a broker or distributor. I have no clue what they're doing for me. Or yay, I got the product on the shelf. How do I actually get it off the shelf? Right. So um, I, I, I started realizing along the way that there is something here between the investment side, the sharks and the fish. Uh, the fish needed the money from the sharks and the sharks were looking for these emerging brands. So while I still had my agency, I became a, a partner in a food investment fund called Spiral Sun Ventures. Um, and we invested in some really great companies. I mean, uh, Pacha Soap, you know, we were with them when they're probably under a million in revenue. You know, they're 25 times that today. Uh, Farmer's Bridge is in there and a bunch of really great brands. But we got to the end of fund one and we were like, hey, we, we just had different paths and ways we wanted to go. So I was looking for another fund to tie my agency to, and that's when I met Tyler and CA Fortune. I started to figure out sort of backpedaling wise, this other part of food, you know, distribution, brokerage, retailer plays, uh, um, manufacturing by working with uh, Will and Whole Brain Consulting and all these great folks. And now as a marketing agency, now I had access to sales agency and, and uh, retailers and distributors like Unify and Kehi, and it just gave me so many more Lego pieces to play with and so many smart people. It was really good, once again, to sit in a room with a bunch of people smarter than you and just play around with these cool opportunities. So it's some of the brands we work with. I mean, we still have the big food companies, a lot of the middle market folks, but those emerging companies are really special, you know, on, on taking them from you know, a, a, a farmer's market to, to category leader, you know, that's the dream, right? Yeah. What do you, what do you think is the biggest and most important quality an emerging brand has when they first come to you or when you first see them that separates them from all the other emerging brands? Yeah. I actually uh, break this back down on the investment side because Good product is nice, but I will say good product. It doesn't have to be an incredible product. It has to be a good product with solid foundations, but more important than that is the founder. Uh, the founder has to be willing to run through brick walls and more importantly, be coachable, meaning they don't have to do everything that myself and other advisors say, but they need to be able to run it through the filter and come up with a thoughtful decision, not based on ego, uh, ego or stubbornness, uh -huh. surprised on how many people think they know it all and no matter what advice or what data is sitting in front of them they will go against it because of ego or stubbornness so i've i've actually had i won't name names but probably one of the best products i ever had in my entire life but because of the founder that brand will never succeed you know uh -huh. the founder just holds the company back at every level where if you have a good product and a solid founder that founder will pivot the product to find the white space Right. Mm -hmm. So it seems weird, but entrepreneur first, product second. No, I get it because when I came to market with Zima's Madhouse Foods, I was very specific about the ingredients. You know, that was my passion, the ingredients and the product that came from the ingredients. And they were expensive ingredients and they drove my price too high. I was the highest one on the shelf. And that was a big problem back in that at that time, we're talking almost, you know, eight, nine years ago, and people weren't really educated on what these functional ingredients were all about. You know, and people are much more ingredients were really expensive back then because yes. there was much of a demand for that. Right? Yes, yes. And it was very, I, I can't even tell you how many times my, um, my general manager would say to me, we really need to think about switching up some of the ingredients and in, to make this the cost come down. And I, I was afraid to do that. I was going against my principle. I was going against my passion and you know, this is how it all started for me. What do you mean I have to change the formula? And it, it, so you're right. You know, you have, not that we want to change all of the ingredients, but there might be, you know, if a door closes on an ingredient that isn't working or driving your price too high, there might be even a better resolution to that. Um, and being, remaining open-minded is definitely part of that equation. Well, and I, I've seen that too, where some people say, for example, hey, I have a package, the actual package itself or the form, I want to do this custom bottle or whatever it is, whatever the case might be. And this, 
you realize all of your cost of goods is going to go into the bottle instead of the ingredients and double the price the, uh, of the product and not make it there. Yeah. Um, you know, instead, you, what I always look at is you look at the restraints of your manufacturer or of that's their restraints and guardrails aren't bad things. What you could do is if you can maximize the opportunity or find a white space within those boundaries, that's, mm -hmm. what you know, so it's once again, in some cases being dumb enough to figure it out, but being able to find the white space in areas that might look murky or cloudy or, or, or confining. Yeah, so I was, um, I was looking at the CA Fortune website, just, you know, studying up on the company and being prepared to talk to you today. And there's a spot on there that basically gives you a list of the components for being a food manufacturer. You've got sales, insights, which is your business intel. You've got retail activation, support, which is your admin, building the brand, branding, which is the creative and the marketing end, and then the e-commerce component. And it, it's all the things, right? So, and, and these are really overwhelming when you're sitting in your kitchen, you know, formulating your cookie recipe or your bar recipe or whatever your, um, your new nut butter recipe, and you're not even thinking about all this stuff. So how do, can you break these down? Like when, it, when I, when somebody comes to you with their new product, how do you even begin the discussion of all of these things? Yeah, usually it, it's, it's almost like if I go to Expo or Fancy or uh, a Unifier Kehi show now, I don't pitch services. All I do is say, hey, what are your three problems, right? And mm -hmm. chances are two, if not all three of those problems fall within our purview. So once again, it's where does your elbow hurt? And I'll tell you how we sort of solve it. But for emerging brands, there's sort of a continuum, right? Uh, <clears throat> and it's not only our agency, it's sort of how I think about things. And remember, this came about where I was duct taping uh, relationships across the board, trying to find a sales agency, trying to find operations folks, trying to find all these folks and put them together on one-off basis. But the way it sort of comes down to the branding side, I always like to start there because first thing you do is you call timeout and you dig through the four cities. The company, what are you guys really good at? What's, wh what are my capabilities? What can my co-man do? What do I want to do? And what can I create? What's my story? <clears throat> look at the category and competition. And the cool thing is now with CA Fortune, I can cheat. I can look at IRI Nielsen and spins and syndicated data. You can do surveys all day long, but people can say whatever they want in a focus group, but their wallets do the talking with syndicated data. And you'd be surprised at the delta between the two. So look at the white space though, between the category and competition of what you're dealing with and know your pricing, know what you have to go after, know your outsizes. Um, and then most important, the customer, which is not only the consumer, it's also the buyer. So what I'd like to do is take those four C's of what people are really good at, find the white space with category and competition, then line that up with the emotional connection, not only with the consumer and the buyer. And out of that, that's where you get your brand name, your campaign name, your tagline, positioning statement, key messaging, skew rationalization, pricing architecture, brand architecture, packaging hierarchy. But more importantly, it's the story that goes from a product to an emotional connection with the consumer and the buyer. Once you get that down, then you can do the package design, right? Package design needs to do two things. One, disrupt the shelf because people are flying by at 150 miles yeah. an hour. And mind you, they're selfish at that point, no matter how altruistic they are. Flying by at that shelf, you need to disrupt them. Then you need to tell them in 1.5 seconds why they care. Education equals debt, right? You got 1.5 seconds to hit the attributes and the emotional connection to have them pick the product up. Otherwise, you're dead. Uh, and then the buyer needs two things. The buyer needs to know hey, if I put this on my shelf, will you turn more and make me more money than the other guy? And can you bring new people to my category? If you can answer those two things, you win, right? And the package design is the ultimate 1.5 second punch in the face. And then you can move on to, hey, get your block and tackle out of the way, the website, hopefully Shopify with direct consumer, your uh, retailer deck and your sell sheet to arm the sales team to do their job. 
And then you can go to go-to-market strategy between direct-to-consumer, Amazon, e-com, et cetera. So they start with branding, then they might move to our e-com team for Amazon. We might launch direct-to-consumer. Then our build team comes on, which is our approach for emerging brands. And then our sales agency comes behind the build team along the way. So gateway for emerging brands is branding and then the other steps sort of moving forward. So it's that same transition, but with the middle market companies and the bigger folks, it's, hey, I'm coming in with sales. Maybe I should call timeout. I'm getting killed by these emerging brands. Maybe I should look at what these folks are doing. Or if you're a middle market company that's doing private label wholesaling and co-packing and you might have a brand with 80 SKUs, but it looks sort of ugly, like mm -hmm. label. Yeah. Hey, if we can not only get cost of goods in line, but also the velocity of an emerging brand by making it look and sound cool and hit the attributes to consumer once, they have twice the chance to kill it, you know? Yeah. So one thing I want to clarify for our listeners is what a co-man is. A co-man, for those of you who are not in this arena, but you're curious about it, is a co-manufacturer. So if you're at home, like I was at home and created a product and you want to bring it to market, you don't have to own your own manufacturing plant. In fact, most of these emerging brands do not, and they go to a co-manufacturer, which is a third-party company that handles the, it's it's like a private label um business. They, they create for lots of different companies out there to your specs. Um, you provide them the packaging, you provide them sometimes the ingredients, sometimes they have the ingredients and you work with them and you build that relationship. So that's what a co-man is. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, that 1.5 second. In one and a half seconds, I don't even think buyers really know going up and down the grocery store aisles what they're looking for. So what's the first thing that they're going to see that's going to tap into that curiosity? Well, I, on a package design, you usually have four or five points of communication. One could be your brand name. One could be the product description. One could be the skew or the flavor. Uh, one could be the attributes or the health benefits or call outs. Um, and another might be the design in and of itself, right? So depending on if I can mess with a name to have the name of the brand help me tell that story, sometimes I'll use that. If I'm stuck with the name, um, sometimes I'll defocus on the name and focus on uh, helping people understand it, right? So I, I guess the, the better way is sort of describe it, looking at Goodbelly, right? Goodbelly launched at a time when no one knew what probiotic. Wait, first, yeah, tell everyone what it is. I know what it is, but you tell it. Good Belly is a probiotic drink. That is, mm -hmm. everybody's pretty familiar with probiotics today. They weren't, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years ago. Um, so one, for the education piece, if you educated somebody on probiotics, you're dead, right? Because, hey, here's a very complex thing. You're flying by, you got only so much time at the grocery store, then you got to go pick up your kid here and there and all these other things going on. That's not the time for education. That's the time for, I have a need, my selfish need, let me pick it up. So the cool thing is Alan was working with a great name, Good Belly tells what probiotics do. Oh, it makes my belly feel good. Great. So that helped tell that 1.5 second punch in the face story. And then you have the picture of the fruit. The problem was the other part is disrupting the shelf because once again, they had, when we, when I first met Alan, they had a bright, beautiful, colorful packaging. Looks great when I sat on the table. You're like, oh, that's phenomenal. I could win a design award for that. The problem is when you put that beautiful, colorful piece uh, in the fruit juice aisle, with all the other bright, colorful packaging, guess what? It blends in like a chameleon. So it's yeah. almost hiding in all that color. When, when Alan actually went with the black design that hovered off the shelf with her fluorescent lights, so you had the sea of color, and the thing that popped out was these four or five uh, black boxes with fruit on it that told the story of Good Belly really quickly and talked about probiotics. Disrupt the shelf 1.5 seconds, velocity or turns, uh, how many products sell per week per skew or per item? 300% mm -hmm. almost overnight because he did those two things really well, right? Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, you don't always get that. That's not what you, you, you expect, but it's nice. Right. <laughs> how many times or chances do you get 
to change your company name or your company packaging to get it right. Because people like me who are in their kitchen, in their garage, in their basement, formulating these foods, bringing it to market, we don't have any money to spend on packaging. And we, we don't have the money to hire a Steve Gaither to help us be creative. We're just, we're doing what we, what we can afford at that point. And that might mean, you know, homemade stickers off your computer printer. So most of the emerging brands I'm assuming are coming to you and they're needing a lot of up, you know, facelifts, a lot of upgrades. So how many chances do you get? Unlimited, right? Unlimited is as long as you're moving forward, right? Even the big brands uh, are constantly changing and adapting their packaging to increase velocity, right? And some work, some don't work. Tropicana, obviously a bad story of, of what not to do with a package design. But for the most part, you're constantly tweaking the brand because the entire landscape's changed. Even five years ago, um, you know, natural channel used to be Whole Foods, Sprouts was 80% and a ton of independence. But natural channel is now lowering the price and increasing uh, uh, the product offering, right? At right. the same time, conventional grocery stores, your regional grocery stores, and even your Walmart, they no longer have the two aisles of natural. You're seeing the products in line. So I could see Simple Mills grain-free crackers right next to Club and Ritz now, right? So right. I, I argue that natural is acting more like conventional, convention, conventional is acting more like natural, all because the rise of the conscientious consumer. So she has changed the world. She cares about what she puts in her body, how animals are treated in carbon footprint. And she's evolved not only her as an individual, but also the food brands have to adapt to these morphing channels and changes and trends and product attributes. So if you don't change, you die. So when I talk to an emerging brand that says, you know, I've got my name, it's too tough to change my name right now. If I can change the name for a 50 million or a hundred million dollar or $500 million company, and doesn't always mean name change, but packaging change, all of those folks need to change in order to thrive and survive. So then how do some of these brands that don't change stay alive? Like a Tom's of Maine. I mean, their packaging has been like that for a long time. And Dr. Bonner, Dr. Bronner, uh, that packaging has been the same. So there are some of these companies that are seem to be foolproof in the market and maintain their status without having to change anything. I bet if you go through and you look, there's probably been some minor tweaks. Mm -hmm. not even noticing it. Uh, it. They might look the same, but I bet if you look through in a transition, I'm sure some small even changes they wouldn't really think about are there. Like they probably pulled out the um, some of the, the claims that people are starting to understand now with like um, Pacha did a great job of, um, you know, pulling out the essential oil story and, and, and saying that it's better than the sulfites and sulfates and things like that. So people are now looking for sulfate-free. People are now looking for just like they used right. to look for non-GMO, which was a little bit of a farce. Somehow non-GMO became more popular with consumers than organic, even though organic was better and more inclusive of GMO. Mm -hmm. But when a consumer picks something up, if they understand that attribute, that's going to help with that 1.5 second punch in the face story. So even head and shoulders now says no sulfates or sulfites, you know? Right. So it's, everybody's moving. That's really interesting. You bring them up. I have this app and um, I wish I could think of the name of it, but it's an app where you can scan natural skincare products. And it will tell you if it's a red or a yellow or a green zone product and how many chemicals are in it. And you see all of the top mainstream brands in there changing. So yeah. they're not all red. They're now yellows and greens, which is really incredible. Like mouthwash companies and toothpaste and deodorant and all from, you know, Dove and Crest, the, the big ones. So I think that's really cool that there's a demand for that and they're listening and changing. Well, that's a, it's a funny thing too. The, the rise over the past five years of these emerging brands and the conscientious consumer has changed everything to where originally there used to be natural products and natural channel and conventional products and conventional channel. There was a big divide, the yeah. Whole Foods customer 
and products versus the Walmart customer and products. And it used to be, if you're in Walmart, you could never get into Whole Foods. But those days have really changed. I argue most of the products that would be considered innovation across the board would have been considered natural five years ago. You know, I mean, even look at Mondelez. Mondelez has three different breakdowns with their company. They have one group that cleans up the existing brands. Look at Oreo. Oreo now has gluten-free. Uh, they have one group that innovates within their current infrastructure. And then they have one group that either invests in or acquires other brands. They acquired Perfect Bar, they invested in Hue, and then acquired Hue, right? So there's three arms of it. All of the new products coming out from all three of those pillars would have been considered natural channel products five years ago. So even me, uh, I work with, uh, you know, a, a big protein company in the meat space. And five years ago, ABF, no nitrates, no nitrites, antibiotic free, maybe 5% or less of their product mix. You know, they're running a quarter million pounds of product out on an ongoing basis. Maybe 5% or less was ABF. Um, now today, if you are an ABF, you're probably not one of the uh, one of the top SKUs anymore. It's an anything in the game now, right? So these emerging brands have really changed the mentality of the big brands, the middle market brands, uh, and then themselves the emerging brands. So it's you start to see all because this conscientious consumers is starting to care about things. Retailers are paying attention, and now even the, the big food companies have to pay attention, right? Yeah, absolutely. How do you? feel that the private label, let's just use grass-fed beef for an example, private label grass-fed beef versus a company like Prey or um, one of your companies, um, Raise American. I thought that was a really interesting company, by the way. Um, how do you think they fare against each other? You know, the private label prices are always going to be lower, no fancy packaging, but the contents are pretty much, you know, the same, if not very, very similar. Well, meat's sort of a weird spot, right? Because uh, if you want American organic grass-fed beef, chances are it's raised American, right? The only problem is with raised, did we want to really compete in that fresh aisle with ground beef, strips, and steaks? If you look at the data, 60% in growing is private label. Think about it, it's all a private label play so you really can't do a brand. Pre has sort of tried and is making some traction in that space. Uh, we're trying to do it, but our approach was, okay, let that be private label. Uh, go ahead and sell the uh, private label, the grass-fed organic uh, 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 on regenerative farms, sell that meat and let them do it. Where can we attack though? We can attack in the refrigerated meal trays. So with meatballs and pot roast au jus and uh, barbacoa, and the wheel trains right above the meat, that's where we can play and own a brand and create a brand block. We can also go to the sausages where Gilbert's and Adele's and those things are doing the chicken sausage. We could do the grass-fed beef uh, comparison with pre-cooked sausages. We can also go to frozen and do flexitarian instead of stir Mongolian stir fry, we could do grass-fed uh, skirt steak with um, cauliflower rice, you know, and we could bring it into other value adds. So sell the private label stuff as a commodity. And then in the areas where you can grow your brand and own a brand, don't try to create a branded product in a private label turf. So me, if I was a nut brand, that's a tough place to go. What I would do if I was a nut brand is put it in clusters, put it into a pouch and put it over in the snack section set, do anything I could to get it out of the nut aisle because that's the place of bulk and private label and the big brands that are there will kill you, Fishers and cars and all those right. will just destroy you. So don't play their game, play a new game, right? Right, right. I, I really like the idea behind this Raise American. Um, they got some really cool ideas. It's not a food that I would eat, but I'm all for options. Everybody's different. Everybody has different needs and different tastes and different likes. And these guys, I think it's just genius that they mixed the, their organic grass-fed beef patties with other foods, things like um, 
sweet potato and quinoa, lentils, different seasonings, mushrooms. So you don't have to take your burger mix and now mix all the things in there to make the fancy burger you want for dinner. It's already there. This is a great option for people who eat those foods, right? It's great, it's great flavor too. And yeah. uh, Scott, uh, Scott Lively actually wrote a book called, God, what's it, what's it called? Um, I'm pulling it up real quick here. Yeah, he actually just recently wrote a book and he, he's releasing it. So I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, oh, For the Love of Beef. And one of the things he sort of admits is, you know, there's different levels of beef and different quality, like conventional versus uh, grass fed. And for your palate, some people like conventional meat. It might taste better because of everything going on with it. And it, has, it might be, have more marbling. Right. But for your health, obviously, on an ongoing daily basis or weekly basis, grass-fed is much better for your body. Um, at the same time, he also admits that eating meat all the time is not necessarily a good thing. And if you look at the data, there's, there's sort of a continuum. Uh, one, you have vegan on one side and carnivore on the other side, this rising flexitarian space, which is somebody that'll eat a Beyond Burger one day and then eat a um, grass-fed uh, ribeye the next, right? So they really don't care as long as it tastes good and they'll float between plant-based or animal-based, it doesn't matter. That's 70% of the market plus that flows in the flexitarian space. So to give people meat options, but also the options of plant-based in there, it's, it seems weird, but it's happening. You know, and, and coming from a, a functional medicine health coach perspective, and, you know, my passion is food and what it does to our cells. And, you know, the goal for everyone out there is to be metabolically flexible, which means you might be in ketosis for, you know, two to four weeks, maybe even six weeks to reboot your metabolism. But then, you know, you want to be able to move into another space and, and have some vegetables too, or have something you might normally not have. And, and it not throw your game completely out of whack, but that your body has muscle memory, that it remembers how to get back to where it is. And it's all about, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm more of a carnivore. Um, I'm probably 95% carnivore, but every now and then I'll have some, you know, salad or something else. And it's, I, I love that there's these options because that's really how you're going to achieve a long, healthy lifestyle is not being one or the other extreme, but finding flexibility in that middle space. So I, I really like, these aren't things I would go home with because I, I don't do grains, but I really, really appreciate and like the idea of what Raise American is doing. Well, it, it's funny. So you have these weird trends going on simultaneously, right? For example, yeah. in both the meat, the dairy, the cheese, the butter set, two, and even ice cream set, two things are happening. Plant-based, everybody knows, is flying off the shelf. At the same time, so is high butter-fed, grass-fed uh, options. So two polar opposites are moving yeah. and rising at the same time. The crap in the middle is sort of falling away, right? Yeah. So, you know, like finishing butters like and uh, grass-fed butters and uh, grass-fed and A2 milks are moving. And then you look on the other side, obviously NotCo doing what they're doing with uh, uh, AI innovation and Oatly and all these great products coming out, a Ripple that has a little bit more functional benefits than mm -hmm. most of your uh, non-dairies. Interesting things that whole grain is moving at the same time grain-free is moving. It's like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, it is really incredible. People are becoming more dialed into their unique health equation, which is what my goal is always with my clients. You know, how I eat, how I live my life is not what's going to work for you. And what works for you is not going to work for me. And somewhere along the spectrum, we all fall and can be in an optimal range of health and wellness. And that's the goal. So having these choices and having all of these choices be more sustainable and more conscientious about our environment and our overall health. It's it just, it's really exciting to see on the, on the shelves. What are the top three food trends we're going to see in 2021, even though we're four months in? 
It's, it's, it's weird how we define trends. So I'll, I'll start it off with what I call sort of channel trends, right? Um, during COVID, you had this whole sort of rise back to the kitchen and the dining room, right? Where uh, spices and pancake mixes were flying off the shelf, right? People were starting to cook on their own and starting to make things from scratch, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a shift not all the way back to grab and go sort of thing, but more back to do it for me or help me do it sort of thing. So from scratch mentality with a little bit of help, uh, you know, so I think you're going to see people not having quite as much time uh, because they're going to be going back to work maybe two or three days a week and starting to get back into life and restaurants be open. So they might not be cooking from scratch quite as much. Mm -hmm. um, so food service coming back, uh, you know, I, I'm a little bit more bearish on those pancake mixes and spices compared to last year. You know, I think they sort of hit their peak, which why wouldn't you in the middle of a pandemic? I think grab and go formats will be starting to come back. Uh, Pre-COVID, you know, is really bullish on the whole grab and go frozen space, like Evolve and uh, Real Good Foods. And mm -hmm. I can go grab something, throw in the micro for a couple of minutes and eat it. That space was moving tremendously. Then COVID hit and it was like, no, no grab and goes. Everything's got to be two and four person meal starters in bulk sizes because people were at home pantry stuffing and getting their different mixes. Um, another big sort of trend is what I call shoppable content, right? So people really evolved. So when the pandemic first hit, everybody went on Amazon and started to find everything they could on Amazon because they couldn't go to the grocery store. Then Amazon started having shipping delays and even Amazon Prime was taking 30 plus days and inventory was a concern. So it taught people to go back to direct consumer websites. So now you're shopping on Amazon. Now you're also shopping on individual company sites and right. doing it. And at the same time, brick and mortar retail started to pick back up uh, really quicker than most any other area. But the retailers pivoted super fast as well um, with this rising, I call it click and brick, right? Um, curbside pickup grew 90% during COVID. Uh, Instacart and ship delivery through the retailer.com grew 45%. You're talking, we jumped five years on the ubiquity scale. My parents do curbside pickup and used Instacart. They never would have did that pre-COVID. Now all of a sudden, their life has changed. Instead of like my wife's shopping patterns used to be, go to Aldi for this, go to Target for that, go to Walgreens for this, go to whatever for that. Now the mix is almost like a French bicycle, you know, with a little card on it. It's order a couple things from Amazon, order uh, two things from ship delivery, uh, curbside pickup at Target, and then walk in and buy something else. It's just completely changed the idea of shoppable content and the way people are filling that little bicycle basket up with food and different trips now. So it's- So with, with that being said, do you, is there any concern over people getting back to walking into the grocery store, walking in and down all of the aisles and you know having that 1.5 second experience um, seeing these new emerging products? Well, it'll be, it, that was a concern, I would say, in the early uh, March, April last year. But it slowly started to come back. And now traffic at grocery stores is back to pre-COVID level. And uh, the, uh, that whole click and brick component was really incremental growth, unfortunately, at the cost of food service. Now, what you're going to see happening is some sort of right sizing. But now, once again, we train people to where, like I said, my... I have a choice now of spending two hours in the grocery store over the weekend or picking it up and going in and just looking for some crazy things I want to go look for. I can do a combination of things, right? So it's right. really given me flexibility as a consumer and to shop and buy a product on my terms through all of these different channels that are starting to smush. What is the most saturated aisle right now product? What is it the yogurts, the protein bars? What's what's the most saturated? Gosh, I mean, it depends on the, you mentioned two big ones, right? Uh, protein bars, the problem with protein bars is during COVID, um, 
individual bars sort of went away because no one was grabbing and going, right? And especially when a large percentage of sales of uh, protein bars actually happened at convenience stores. Convenience stores were down 12% plus during the early months of COVID. So multi-pack bars were the only ones that really survived, right? So um, yeah, protein bars, it, it depends which protein bars you're talking about. Are you talking about the sports nutrition set with one bar and Quest and those bars? Or are you talking about the other protein bar aisle when you're thinking Clift and Kind and that aisle, right? That one is dominated by those big brands. Very, very difficult to get into and very hard. That one is saturated as heck. Uh, sports nutrition, a little bit less so. Yogurts, yeah. Um, pretty saturated. I actually, I get really excited about right next to yogurts is you have yogurts and then right in the middle, you have some of that weird set that Perfect Bar created that's got that hodgepodge of Once Upon a Farm and Perfect Bar kind of going into it. Yeah. But right next to it is that sleepy aisle of pudding that hasn't changed for 50 years that, uh, you know, is Conagra and Kraft Heinz. Mm -hmm. There's room for disruption. You're starting to see a little bit with like the collaborative coming in with uh, oat milk based puddings uh, and different functional ingredients. Noops is coming in there into that space. So that's where I get excited, right? Getting the yogurt people to trade up for better flavor and then putting people to trade over for better function. Instead of creating new categories, where can you steal from categories is the fun part. Yeah, so as a carnivore, I'm super curious to see in the next five to 10 years, what kind of products are coming out? Because carnivore, even if you're not a full on carnivore, um, people are, that space of people eating more grass fed meat is growing. And I, I believe there's gonna be a bunch of products coming out because the recipes I see online from some of these really creative folks are just incredible how they can use just animal-based products and make bread or make um you know rolls or make a cake or whatever it is they're making it's just animal products and it's truly incredible and i think that there's going to be a lot of things coming forward in the next five to 10 years. There's a couple companies I wanted to mention. One is called Carnivore Snacks and one is called Carnivore Crisp and they're direct competitors and they're only online. And it's just basically dried beef and salt. And it's in, the packaging is awful. Like they absolutely both need a facelift, um, but they're not in stores right now. They're only available online, but it's a great portable grab and go snack for people who are paleo, keto, low carb, carnivore, um, just look uh, athletes. It's just a, it's a great, uh, it's a great product. And I'm really curious to see more things coming out. Yeah. I mean, for me, my first sort of foray into that space was when I, and we did the rebranding for, it's called Project Protein. And we ended up creating real good foods out of it. Uh, was when, when Brian Freeman sort of came up with the idea, it was on his last exit with uh, uh, Frozen Chicken Company he exited to. And he was in Asia, saw somebody eating a chicken leg with Parmesan and marinara, came back to the US and decided to make a frozen pizza, but instead of using dough as the crust, using ground chicken and Parmesan. And what he found was, one, a pizza that microwaved really well in four minutes, because dough doesn't microwave that well. Right. Uh, and two, you had 28 grams of protein and four grams of carbs. Those were great macros. But he knew, you know, healthy pizza doesn't sell. Screaming Sicilian will turn 10 units per store per week in the premium set. Amy's and Udi's will do twos and threes. So I would much rather be a loser in the premium set than a winner in the gluten-free set because in the pizza aisle, consumers go there to sin first, health second. So you had to create a brand that could speak to the keto crowd. Real good, real ingredients, good and good for you. Or you could talk to the guy sitting on the couch watching NASCAR, just wanting to eat a pizza and, and pick it up at Walmart and say, it's just a real good pizza, right? How can you speak out of both sides of your mouth with taste and function at the same time and not just be targeted as a natural or keto brand, but how can you take a keto brand and go mass? And that was sort of my first advent of using me uh, as sort of as a basis sort of along the way and really led into that sort of keto slash paleo mentality on the shelf, but not 
from a natural or specialty perspective, but from a mass perspective. I mean, they killed it at Kroger. Uh, they launched uh, bowls, wraps, handhelds. Uh, they killed it at Target. Then they killed it at Walmart. They went from brown paper bag prototype to 50 million in two and a half years because they basically took a pizza and took everything that people love from the pizza and made it out of meat, which made it taste even better. It was pretty neat, you know? Yeah. I, I think did a great job, obviously, of bringing in the meat bar and the play, but some of the new technologies and form factors are, are amazing, especially when you're starting to get into, one, the plant-based uh, meats, and then two, when you're getting to some of the cell-based technology, that's pretty interesting too, the animal-free, um, uh, uh, carnivore products, right? Right, right. How often do you turn away an emerging brand that might cross your path? Well, once again, I always play those two things. Um, it really comes down to the entrepreneur or who's doing it. If somebody knows what they're doing and they just want button pushers, either they're not the right folks for us and they might succeed, but not with us. Um, or if they're the coachable folks that I could tell that they have something, they're willing to run through brick walls and they're coachable. And obviously they have some funds to work with to, to pay the bills. I, and, and with my big brothers and big sisters here, if we have a good product with a great entrepreneur, those are the type of folks you could drive to the next level and up the hill. So it's, yeah, sometimes if it's a wonky product, but I can always fix a product, right? You can't fix a founder, you know? Very true. <laughs> I have a couple last questions before we end. I want to talk about the Good Food Business Accelerator in Chicago. Um, that was something that I learned about after I was done with my business. And I think it is just such an incredible opportunity and concept for emerging brands. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that for our listeners out there who think they have something pretty special and how just the different paths they can take to gain more experience, exposure, um, how to learn this, this space. Um, so talk about that. Well, I'll talk about one in Chicago and then I'll talk about some other places like um, in Chicago, you know, a good food accelerator is an option. They, they usually take on like eight to 12 cohorts per year. Tell us what that is, though, for those of us not familiar. Yeah, so good food accelerator is, is basically a group put together. Uh, it's uh, family farm and partners like Whole Foods and UNFI and a couple other folks that came in. It's tied to 1871. And what they do is they basically have people pitch to apply for the process. And what happens is if you get accepted, you now uh, basically get sort of coached on your way to help your food business out, get from uh, wherever you're at to that next level. You know, everything from working with a co-manufacturer to figure out your pricing, to figuring out how distribution and retailers work to, um, financing or raising funds uh, versus debt. So a lot of those components are there. Uh, then you also have like the hatchery, which is, hatchery is great. Um, Natalie and what she's doing there is basically taking emerging brands that are starting to self-manufacture, they might be doing out of their kitchen. And what they have is a shared kitchen space along with the curriculum and education that doesn't take you through a quote unquote program, but takes on an evolving program. So they can have um, you know, a number of people in their commercial kitchen, but a number of people that can just attend their events and their curriculum is pretty massive and not limited to just those 12 cohorts. So you can hook up with the hatchery and either uh, get some kitchen space or just attend a lot of the, uh, uh, become a member and attend a lot of the different agenda events. Um, you know, out of Boston, we work with uh, Branch Foods and Branch Ventures. They have an accelerator that not only, and Big Ideas Ventures does the same thing, not only do they give you a space and curriculum and an agenda and a process, they also bring capital to the table. And like BIV will invest 100K uh, for everybody in and then help with follow-up funding. Um, branch will actually, depending on the scenario, actually invest in somebody and then do follow-on investment along the way. 
So every community has, uh, some more than others, has good resources to work from, right? So Chicago has a bunch. You've got the hatchery, you got Good Food Accelerator, you have Naturally Chicago, you have Chicagoland Food and Bev, all great resources that you can either attend events or talk to people uh, connected and maybe sign up for programs. Uh, Boston's got an incredible program with Branch, Big Ideas Ventures. Um, Naturally has great support in other cities like Naturally Boulder, Naturally Bay Area, uh, Naturally New York, Naturally Austin. Um, so there's these great communities. And the cool thing about the food and bev space is there's like five jerks and everybody else is great people. You know, uh, everybody helps each other out, supports each other. The amount of giving back and forth is, I've never seen an industry like it, which is why I love it so much. It's just great people helping each other out to really uh, lift that boat up, you know? Yeah, that's great advice. Great places. I'll um, be sure to list all of these opportunities in the show notes as well. Well, and Food Foundry too, if you're more on the uh, food innovation side, Food Foundry is, uh, part of Gordon Food Service. So they're doing a lot of tech and innovation and stuff like that, especially around food service. That's another great Chicago one. So before we uh, wrap up, what are three pieces of advice you would give to someone who's sitting at their table, listening to this in their kitchen, thinking they've got the next you know, amazing product and they just don't have the resources or have no, like me, no experience in this, in this arena, what are three of your top pieces of advice to give to them? Well, I'll go just a little bit past that phase, right? So I, the three things I always like to think, uh, have a company think about, not necessarily in this order. One, uh, Google margin calculator right, is one of the best things of all time. Because if you can manufacture a product, you have to realize all the other dollars associated with it. So if you see something at $4.99 on shelf, or $3.99 on shelf, your cost of goods has to be around $1.40, right? So you aren't getting that full $3.99. You have to sell it for $1.40 then the distributor takes 15% and you have to have 15% trade spend and then the retailer takes 30 to 40%. So that's where you get that final price. And at the end of the day, you still need to make a margin. So I always look at, you have to do the math first to make sure if I can afford to do this with the cost of what it takes to manufacture this product. And if you can't, you either got to figure that out or stop, right? Because no matter what, and you, you pretty much know the price you have to be at. Go to the store, look at other products in there, look at the highest one, look at the lowest one, and you can't be much higher than, you've got to be a really innovative thing to be 20% higher than the biggest brand, but I would usually put that at the high end and start your math there, right? So margin calculator, it doesn't sound sexy, but everything, every channel you pick has to go there. Uh, what people don't realize is there's things um, there's actually a book uh, uh, that I'm listening to on Audible that's pretty funny, but pretty realistic. It's called The Secret Life of Groceries that sort of tells like all of these things in real layman turf. Listen to that book. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, or read the book, <laughs> listen to it if you're me. Um, but things like trade spend and things like that that you never heard of that is 15% that you're paying for that you can't put underneath expenses that's right up there with cost of goods, you know? Yep. So, um, the other thing is space on shelf. If I have a product and good idea, where does it belong in the store? Where can I put it? And it can't be a new category. For every perfect bar or once upon a farm or something like that created a new category, there's 10,000 brands that failed because they didn't have a place to put them. I always think about where can I place and how can I steal from categories instead of creating a new one? For example, you have sparkling waters over here. You have your, your drinking vinegars and kombuchas over here. 
how can I create a product that gets the sparkling water and the soda people to trade up for function and less sugar? And how can I get the, uh, the uh, kombucha people to trade over for something less polarizing and has better taste? That's where I'll do like a Olipop or a Poppy or a Brizo, a brand that we're launching that's a sparkling ACV brand. Mm-hmm. That's something where I can get the sparkling people to trade up for function and the functional people to trade over for taste that's stealing from two categories instead of creating a new one. So you have to think about in the end, where am I going to place this to tell Mm -hmm. the retailer to put it there? And so the consumer can understand it. And the last thing is if you are going to do a retail strategy and if you don't have lots of funding, own home. Meaning if I'm in Chicago, stay with Chicago in the Midwest. If Sprouts comes to me and says, you have an incredible product, we want to put you in and you don't have heavy, heavy funding. What will unfortunately happen is you'll give them a case and a half your product free. That's called free fills. That's the cost of entry. That product won't move because you're not there to support it or demo it or anything else. So then they're going to ask you to promote or discount your product that you just gave them for free. And that's still not going to move. And then they're going to pull you off the shelf and you're $20,000 in the hole. Or worse yet, you open up Unifying Kehi and you don't know how to manage bill bags. And next thing you know, you're in all of these retailers with a distributor that you don't know who the retailers are. And then you start getting bill bags of saying that you owe people money. So you're writing them checks instead of you. You could bleed to death by looking at distribution over sell through own product. If you don't have money, own home, own your region, stay there own it, get your numbers down, then you have choices on bringing either debt or funding and stuff to get to a multi-region approach. So those- Yeah, all great, great points. They make a lot of sense because somebody's sitting at home right now putting like 17 ingredients in a bar and it tastes great. And they're not thinking, oh, you know, 12 of these ingredients are gonna be really hard to source. They're really expensive. Most in, in at that level, when you're using so little of an ingredient in a final product, does it really make the difference nutritionally that you want it to make? So a lot of things to think about. I think the biggest piece of advice I would give someone if all these three things were being met is buy really, really good running shoes. Because <laughs> you're going to need them. <laughs> mentioned something great too where I can help and and obviously I like to think CA Fortune can do most anything the one thing we don't do is probably the operations side which having somebody good like I work with Will and Brandon from Whole Brain Consulting they're the outsource operations compliance uh, regulatory QA QC find a manufacturer beat up a manufacturer manage a manufacturer process everything before the distributor that starts to get down to your cost of goods, your R&D, and how to take a product from a kitchen to a manufacturer to produce it. Once again, that same thing you make in a kitchen will not come out of a manufacturer in the same way. So you have to figure out how to reinterpret that. Lean on somebody smarter. I lean on those guys, uh, but lean on somebody smarter than you on those processes, because if you don't figure that out, you're going to be in deep trouble. Yeah. And that being said, there are so many incredibly creative folks out there finding the holes and the niches to bring new products, new emerging brands forward. And I'm always every year just so excited to see the new lay of the land. I I miss one of the things I miss that we didn't have the opportunity to go to last year are the the trade shows, the fancy food show and um, Expo East, Expo West. Those are Uh, For those of you who don't know what those are, these are the top food, international uh, food product showcases. um, And the best part is going around and tasting everything. (laughs) It's a blast. And I mean, you talk about running shoes, but I always say Expo West is literally and figuratively the Disneyland of food and bath. You know, you're at Disneyland. Right. Wondrous place. All these emerging brands, big brands, and just thousands upon thousands I think what a quarter million people go yeah. it's just all filled with food it's it's fun 
It's really, it is really incredible. I don't miss the business, but I do miss the creativity, but I've taken it over to my health coaching business and I still create tons of recipes and now get to create formulas for other companies. So less stressful and still the same creative energy um, I get to use. So it, it all worked out well for me. And Steve, thank you so, so much for joining me on this podcast. Um, what a nice reprieve from talking about like cellular function and brain cognitive issues uh, and just having a little bit of fun and talking about the new trends out there because there are people out there thinking about this line of business and I want them to really try to understand more of what the, the realistic vision of it is and what it encompasses and it's really really tough it is but yeah once again, a little ignorance is sometimes a good thing. <laughs> yes, yes. So thank you again. I will put in, um, I'm going to put your company's contact information in the show notes and some other things that we talked about. So people, if they do have a product and want to get to you guys, they know where to go. And thank you for all of your expertise. Yeah, and I'm really in the business for sampling. So I love <laughs> good food. So yeah. Oh, to. I'm sure your pantry at home is, I'm sure it's like your basement is your pantry. <laughs> I love good food. Yeah. Well, anytime you need another taste tester, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you everyone for joining us on the podcast today. And until next time, take care. <laughs>